Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Brent Johnson. We are going to do a deep dive on everything dollar, everything recession, gold, global macro, you name it. But before we do, I want to encourage everyone to check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. It is going to be the most incredible investment conference in human history. I can guarantee that. Why? Because we've got this guy right here. He's going to be one of our headline speakers. That's going to be Brent Johnson himself. It's Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. You got to get your tickets ASAP. You can do that at rebelcapitalistlive.com. Brent, what's going on, my friend? What's going on with the dollar? The, the headlines are telling you, man. We've got de-dollarization. The dollar's toast. The U.S.'s empire's done. And, you know, it's just, it's all this is a given. There, there's no need to do any more analysis. And it's all going to happen within the next month or two, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a done deal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's what's being said on Fintwit. And, you know, I texted you the other day, I think, when I saw that on Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And I'm like, all we need now is for Jim Cramer, Matt Damon, and Tom Brady to come out right. and say that the dollar's doomed. And then you for sure know that's the bottom and you need right. to buy ASAP. <laughs> they didn't come out, but everybody else did. I'll say that. It's really been incredible to see. I mean, it, it's been ubiquitous everywhere you, everywhere you look. And so there's obviously some kind of coordination by somebody to put this word out there. And, you know, it's even, it's, it, you know, when, when, when the average layperson is talking about de-dollarization, you know that it's all over the place. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, I, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not oblivious to it. You know, people say, Brent, how can you not see this? Well, how, how can you not see it? It's literally everywhere, right? And so, of course, I see it, but I just, I see it a little differently than most, probably not uh, surprising to you and everybody else. So why don't we go over the basic argument? And because they've got very good points, that's for sure. Yeah, and yeah. then and then we'll go over how you may see a different time frame or you may see it slightly different. Well, I think the main points are that and, and you know you see these different leaders talk about it. You know, Macron said it, who, who's a, a NATO ally. You know, right. the president of Brazil said it. Um, you know, Russia has said it for a long time. China's made similar comments, and a lot of other you know world leaders, uh, especially the BRICS, have made similar comments. You know, you've got Saudi Arabia. You know, saying they're open to the idea. And, and here's the thing is, of course, they're open to the idea. Um, nobody wants to be under the thumb of somebody else. This is just kind of normal common sense. Um, anybody that can be their own boss wants to be their own boss. Nobody wants to have terms dictated to them. The, the thing for me that's been kind of interesting is the lack of details. The, a lot of headlines, a lot of comments, but in, if you actually read the articles, if you actually read the interviews that the quotes are taken out of, there's yeah. no substance there. Nothing has been said about how they're actually going to do it. But there's no question that there is an increased rhetoric about a desire to do it. And my point has always been that it takes a lot more than frustration and anger and, and desire to unseat the global reserve currency and come up with a new system. Um, if, if it only took a bunch of frustration and desire to, to undo this, it would have been undone decades ago, right? The, this frustration uh, has been there for a very long time. And, you know, the, the problem is it's just very hard to do. And, and I've used this analogy before. It's kind of like saying that I want to be on the PGA Tour. I intend to challenge Tiger Woods for being the greatest golfer in history. Well, it's great to say it, but how do you actually do it? You know, it's, it's, it's two totally different worlds.
Yeah, so let, and, and let's, I, go, let's, yeah. let's go into that a, a little bit, Brent, because a headline is is like Saudi Arabia is now ditching the dollar and they're only going to transact in uh, Yuan. Or from now on, they're going to settle transactions between Brazil and China in, in Yuan. So what the, the layman sees in that title, and it, and, and, it, and it makes a lot of sense, is that from now on, Brazil is no one in Brazil is going to be using dollars to settle. Nobody. Because you have this top-down type of approach where the central planner, Lula or whatever the hell his name is, says, okay, we're no longer dealing with dollars. So that means that all of the widget makers in Brazil are now going to sell all the dollars on their balance sheet because they no longer have any need for them whatsoever. And they're going to sell those dollars for yuan. And now they're just going to transact in yuan moving forward. And that's going to be ubiquitous throughout the entire country of Brazil, from the government all the way down to the to the the small uh, widget maker, right? right? And I think what people miss, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the government can come out and say, hey, we are doing this with our oil, the oil that we own. But that doesn't mean that the widget maker is going to do that. The widget maker is going to sell to whomever they want to sell to, and they're going to settle and whatever they want to settle in. And then their inputs, it's its the exact same thing. So just because the uh, government comes out and announces this and tries to enact it through decree, it, what really matters is what people are doing on the ground. And that's usually a lot different. Exactly. And, you know, the way I would describe it is, is imagine tomorrow that Joe Biden and uh, Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell came out and they said, okay, guys, you've seen the headlines, the dollar's done. From now on, we are going to use seashells and you're going to use seashells. Or the, let's seashells. use the SDR. From now on, we're going to use, use the, the SDR. SDR. We're going to use the SDR. How many people are just going to say, okay, no problem. How many restaurants that are have their invoices, how many, they're going to go change their menus to SDRs? Or, or, or Brent, the, or even better, how many just normal average Joes and Janes that have a mortgage it's denominated right. in dollars are going right. to say, "Oh yeah, from now on, I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna save all Diamond, my money in SDR." Jamie, and and Jamie Dimon, who probably thinks he's a lot smarter than any of these three, he's just going to say, "Okay, all the all the mortgages that people are paying us, you can just pay us in SDRs now." Like like Jamie Dimon wants SDRs rather than dollars. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but my point is this: is just because somebody comes out and in the same way that we would push back against our politicians citizens and business leaders and business owners and private market actors in other countries are going to push back against their leaders. Right. And the thing that, that people forget or either they don't know or, and part of the reason they don't know is it's never really been taught is that this whole Euro dollar system, which you've talked about a lot and Jeff has talked about a lot, this was not mandated from the top. Mm, This started organically because you know the u.s was the fastest growing country they were helping to rebuild europe as part of the marshall plan there was a demand for dollars in europe and then you know there was also demand for dollars during the vietnam war because you know nixon didn't want the french banks to make money all the money off of the vietnam war and so you know because dollars were so in demand private actors around the world started extending credit in dollars they started invoicing in dollars they started loaning money in dollars 
And that was the private market taking the lead. And it, you know, nobody at the United States, at the Pentagon or the White House or the Fed said, South Africa needs to trade with India in dollars. Right. It just happened, right? Now, I've made the argument that if and when it is ever challenged uh, that, that the U.S. would lose its global reserve currency, like seriously challenged, that the U.S. would probably push back pretty hard, right? And they would probably even use their military to do so. But that doesn't mean that they used their military to start it in the first place, right? Mm. You know, again, this, you know, they set up the Bretton Woods Agreement with them at the center, with the U.S. at the center, and they put the IMF and the World Bank in place to kind of do their bidding, as anybody would. Again, if you started a company and you're the CEO and now you've got a stack, you've got to fill out your board of directors, you're going to put people in the board of directors that support you. You're not going to put your arch enemy on the board of directors. Well, that's what the U.S. did. They were the winner of World War II. They put themselves at the center of the system. And then they put these institutions and these organizations kind of stacking the deck in their favor. So the people that say that the system is stacked in the favor of the United States, you're absolutely right. That's that's exactly what they did. But because they stacked it in their favor, other players, private actors, took their lead and did it on their own. And so they built up this parallel system, this Euro dollar system that used the official system, you know, as kind of a, a, a way to get, uh, I don't know, credibility or however you want to say it. It was the very official easy. Denomination. The official right. denomination. It was, it was very currency, easy. It was very easy for the private actors to say, hey, let's use dollars. It wasn't right. a hard sell because everybody kind of needed them anyway. And so now you've got this spider web of cross-border transactions and invoices and payment systems and credit extension that's all done in dollars. Hmm. And it, you know, you just can't have somebody just come out overnight and say, we're going to change it. You know, even if they come out, even if all of these countries who have said, we're interested in doing it, we're working towards doing it, we have a plan to do it. If they ever actually came out and said, okay, now we are actually doing it and here's how we're going to do it, it wouldn't work right away. So, yeah. You know, and, and that's that's probably my biggest pushback on all of this. And and it's probably why I've pounded the table on the whole dollar milkshake theory as hard as I can, not to convince everybody that I am 100% right and they should sell everything and go 100% in on my theory. That's not the point of me pounding the table. The point of me pounding the table is so that when people see a headline, they don't just accept it. And hopefully the whole point of me trying to, you know, kind of push this, you know, push this narrative is to, is to, is to counter what I see as the inaccurate, ubiquitous acceptance of it just because somebody says it. Yeah. And it, it's more about convincing everybody not to go all in against the dollar than it is to convince them to go all in on the dollar. Yeah, great point. And I also like to point out my videos that even Bretton Woods, I don't think it was, although people view it as the government just, okay, now all of a sudden, the dollar is the global reserve currency. You guys have to accept it. But I don't really, I mean, that might have been kind of the icing on the cake or what finalized it. But the dollar started, lo- or excuse me, the British pound started to lose global reserve currency way back in the 1920s. And it wasn't sure. by a, a government coming in. It was just that the United States economy was growing and growing and yeah. growing. And therefore, if you had all these entities outside the United States that wanted to do business with entities inside the United States, it would behoove them 
to hold dollars on their balance sheet. So they started to do that more and more and more. And as the uh, percentage of global GDP increased with the U.S. economy, so did those entities' uh, desire to hold dollars. And this is starting in the 1920s. So by the time we get to 1944, you know, the central planners come out and say, hey, the dollars are the global reserve currency. And it's like everyone else says, uh, yeah, we, we knew that 10 years ago. You know, yeah. thanks for the heads up. Right. And I, right. I think that right now, I, I totally agree that, that we're de-dollarizing. Uh, the dollar is definitely in the process of losing reserve currency. I absolutely agree with that. But I think I don't think that we're at 1944 right now. I think we're at like 1925. And that, yeah. that's the point I try to make. Yeah, and I agree with that. And here, here's the thing is, you know, everybody likes to talk about the kind of the death of the dollar started in 1971 or two when, you know, Nixon delinked, you know, he, he stopped, you know, France asked for all their gold back and they sent a warship to get it. And then it wasn't too long after that where Nixon actually delinked it and said convertibility is no longer an option. And that started the era of floating exchange rates, just free floating exchange rates with, you know, not not tied to anything um, that would not have been possible without three things. One, it would not have been possible without the agreement with Saudi Arabia to price oil in dollars that, because that, that, that created a huge demand for dollars. It wouldn't have been possible if the U.S. wasn't the strongest military in the world. Right. Um, that's a huge part of it. And it, but it also would not have been possible had the euro dollar system not already um, had been built or, or, or developed or grown to the extent that it had. Again, this this whole euro dollar market started back in the 50s, maybe even in the 40s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And so by the time by the time Nixon delinked the currency from gold and a lot of people thought, well, the dollar is going to lose value. And it did it against real things. We had we had, you know, the 70s uh, against real things. The dollar absolutely lost value. Um, but it but people still used it as the global reserve currency because it was so ubiquitous already. If they would have just came out out of the blue in 1971 and said, we're delinking the dollar from gold and we're going to come up with a whole new currency, which we call the widget or the, you know, the Esperanto or the whatever you want to call it. People would be like, what are you talking about? No way. We, we've already got all of our stuff going in you know, euro dollars. We're, we're not we're not switching or it would have been a much harder sell. Right. Uh, but the fact that the, 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 the market of its own accord had already built up is what made delinking the dollar from gold much easier than it otherwise would have been. Yeah, you know, a good analogy might be the euro dollar system was set up, created in the 1950s. So it had 20 years to grow and be, and have this network effect. You know, we always hear about Google or Facebook or Apple yep. or Instagram or whatever. They have this network effect. And, uh, you know, the Bitcoiners talk about Bitcoin having that network effect as well. So in a way, what you're talking about with the petrodollar is basically just someone building an app for the existing network. And yeah, that's, that's why it worked because example. the network was already there, right? Right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, the, the world's tired of it. We're just going to leave. We're not going to deal with it anymore. I like to use Twitter as the example. You know, how many people get so pissed off at Twitter? They don't like Twitter. Twitter's buggy. All it is is a cesspool of hate. You know, they've got this yeah. crazy guy at the, at, the, at the helm of it. 
But yet it's really the only game in town. That's why, you know, there's been these other parallel messaging systems and social media sites have, have popped up. But, you know, and people will go over there for a few days, but they ultimately end up coming back to Twitter because that's where the game is. That's where everybody's at. That's the, network. the network effect. Yeah. So right? I think so, one of the questions and, I was going to ask you, Brent, yeah. because I think a yeah. lot of the pushback, because you were talking about the petrodollar and how important that is, is they'd say, well, Brent, I mean, open up your eyes. The, the, petro, the petrodollar is in the process of yeah. going away. Saudi Arabia is telling you that. So if that's what made the dollar the dollar, then the loss of that isn't that going to collapse the dollar. And that's where I'd go back and argue that they may want to do that. They may have that app for the network. But right now, there's no network set up for the new currency like it was set up for the dollar back in 74. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So uh, I make two points of this. So far... Everybody, not everybody, but a large number of country political leaders, monetary authorities have said, we intend to do this, or we know that it's necessary to do this, or we want to do this, or we're planning to start a program to do this. Nobody has actually said what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But here's the thing. They've said this stuff before. Now, they haven't said it with the frequency and the volume that they're saying it right now. But I can show you headlines from five years ago where Saudi Arabia said, we are open to selling our oil and gold or oil and gold or euro or whatever it is. And, and, and think about it. Why wouldn't they say that? What's the downside to saying we're open to doing it? There's no downside to saying we're open to doing it. But they haven't actually done it, at least not in a meaningful way. Now, I know somebody will say, well, you know, Russia ships some oil to Kenya and they paid for it in gold or whatever it is. And so, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule. But by and large, um, nothing has actually concrete happened that unseats the petrodollar. But let's pretend that everybody's really serious this time and they are actually going to follow through on it. So here's the problem is successful de-dollarization is not in the short term negative for the price of the dollar. Now, ultimately, it will lead to the dollar losing value, losing status, losing you know, the, the U.S. loses its ability to print money for goods. But in the short term, if they stop using dollars, that means there's less do dollars circulating in the world. And if, if Saudi Arabia stops selling oil in dollars, or in dollars, then there's less dollars circulating in the world. That's fine. So demand for dollars falls down. Or, or the, the, the supply of dollars outside the United States falls. Right. Because that circulation is not happening anymore. Right. The problem is, is all that euro dollar credit that's been extended, all those euro dollar loans priced in dollars, all that U.S. dollar debt in the world that's not owed by the United States and that's not owed to the United States. In other words, you could take the U.S. totally off the globe, throw it over on Mars, and the rest of the world still has an enormous amount of U.S. dollar debt. And they owe it to each other. So if there's no longer the circulation of dollars or not as much circulation of dollars, but all that demand is still there because the demand for that credit to get paid back, well, then that pushes the price higher. Not only that, successful de-dollarization is chaotic. Markets don't like chaos. Markets like certainty. And so if you get into this chaotic market, where people are trying to figure out, well, what's it going to be priced in and how's that price going to be determined and which currency is it going to be and who oversees the currency and what payment system does the currency thrive on and who enforces it 
and who audits it and who does this is a lot of uncertainty for a thing that is supposed to underlie confidence and trust in a global economy that process itself leads to economic uncertainty and it leads to economic volatility and economic certainty and economic volatility leads to uncertainty in the populace and when the populace gets uncertain and they start to, you know, maybe their businesses suffer or maybe inflation happens or whatever it is, they start to push back against the governments. And so now you've got not just an economic volatility, but now you've got social volatility. And, and, and so this, and, and then- what And they hoard money too, which slows down velocity and, even further. And, they, and, and velocity falls. And so then what do individual countries do? What do, what do the political leaders and monetary authorities of individual countries do in order to hide the problems that they have caused, they blame it on somebody else. They blame it on the foreigner, right? The evil foreigner, capitalist, communist, whatever, whatever name you want to use, it's the foreigners that are doing this. It's right. the evil speculators, whatever. And so then that leads to military conflict, right? And then that leads to more volatility. And so regardless of whether de-dollarization is a myth, whether it's tried and fails or whether it succeeds, the transition from here to there is, in my opinion, very chaotic. And it's in that chaos, regardless of what the end result is, is that I think the dollar trades higher. Now, that doesn't mean you should run out and put all of your money in this thesis that the dollar is going to trade higher. It just means, in my opinion, that you can't ignore this as a risk. Yeah. And but if you do clear, ignore when you this say trade higher, risk, you're talking about a trade higher against other against, uh, against other currencies yeah we can have 20 percent inflation absolutely here in the united states and the dollar can be ripping higher <laughs> against absolutely. the euro or the yen or something absolutely. like that and people need to make sure they're not conflating the two exactly and so you know this came up a lot last year where well sure for, first of all the dollar was never going to go higher than it, it was never in in late 2018 19 the dollar was never going to go back to 100. And then when COVID hit, it went to 102. And then after they did that, they did the helicopter money and the QEs and it went back down to hit, well, it's never gonna go back to 102 again. And then it went to 115. Right. And then it was like, well, sure, the DXY went to 115, but it's really only against foreign currencies. Well, and, and, then, and then it became, well, if it's just rising versus foreign currencies, it doesn't matter. Okay, so if, if relative currency levels don't matter, then what's the purpose of having currency pegs in the first place? Why is, why is the yuan pegged in a band um, to Western currencies? Why is the Hong Kong dollar pegged to the US dollar if it doesn't matter? Why is the Saudi real pegged to the dollar if relative currencies don't matter? Why did the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England and the ECB have to intervene in their currency and, and sovereign markets last year when the dollar was at 115 if relative currency levels don't matter? Um, and so this idea that all fiat gets debased and so therefore relative fiat levels don't matter. It's just provably incorrect. And I understand the idea that maybe it's more, you need to more concern about what the purchasing power of the currency does. And I agree with that. Nobody is, I have never said to just go put all your money and sit in dollars and let it lose value over time as fiat currency always does. Right. My point has always just been that versus its peers, the dollar is probably, and I can be wrong, but probably going to go a lot higher before it goes a lot lower. Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Got a quick question for you. Are you someone that realizes we are headed straight for an economic recession, maybe even worse? 
Do you also realize that the government is trying to restrict your freedom, liberty, and privacy on a daily basis? We've all heard in the news lately about central bank digital currencies, and it's not a matter of if we get them. It's simply a matter of when. But although you know we're facing all of these problems, you don't know what to do about it. How do you protect your wealth or grow your wealth when we're dealing with a very volatile economic environment? Or how do you maintain or increase your freedom and privacy when we have this woke Orwellian government that's trying to micromanage your life? Well, fortunately, got some good news for you. I have set up an event that is focused on helping you, the rebel capitalist, find solutions to these problems. It's all set up to help you build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments. That event is Rebel Capitalist Live. It's going to be absolutely incredible. It's in Orlando, May 12th to the 14th. We're going to have speakers like Peter Schiff, Mike Maloney, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, Robert Barnes, just to name a few. So to get more information on how you can attend this incredible event, it's going to give you actionable intel that will help you prepare for the rest of 2023 and beyond. Go to rebelcapitalistlive.com, and I will see you in Orlando. You're talking about the dollar relative to another currency, and people are saying, well, Brent, why are you even focused on that? That doesn't even matter in the long run. And you're saying, well, yeah, actually it does. And the reason you're saying that is because there's so much dollar-denominated debt on the balance sheets off or outside the United States, and that cash flow isn't necessarily in dollars. So if you have dollar-denominated debt, but your cash flow is in yen, uh, if the dollar is going up against the yen, even if both currencies are going down relative to stuff, you got a big, big problem right there because it Absolutely. makes that debt burden even uh, a lot higher than it was before. And that's your point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if there is somebody out there who say relative fiat currencies levels don't matter, that person probably lives in the, either the United States or Switzerland where their currencies have, for the most part, stayed pretty strong versus other currencies. Yeah. Ask somebody in Turkey, ask somebody in Argentina, ask somebody in Cyprus, ask somebody in Russia, ask somebody in Sri Lanka, ask somebody in Peru, ask somebody in Colombia, if relative currency levels matter. And, you know, I guarantee you, there's not many guarantees in this world, but I guarantee you those operators in those countries who have seen their currencies fall versus the U.S. dollar think that love the, think that uh, foreign currencies matter or and, yeah. and, and relative fiat currency levels matter. Absolutely. If you think that doesn't impact the United States, just ask yourself where the United States gets all the goods. Where, where, do you think, where, <laughs> exactly. where do you think Walmart gets its stuff? Where do you think Target, Home Depot? It gets it from foreigners. So if, right. if this is a problem for foreigners, then this is a problem for the United States. But what's uh, ironic is that problem might manifest itself in higher prices in the United States uh, as a result of the dollar going up outside the United States. That That's what's really kind of a... Uh, well, I'm, I'll keep it family friendly here, but that's what's really screws with people's minds. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's exactly. And again, let, let's think about this. A year ago or not six months ago, the dollar relative to its peers was at a 30 year high. This is despite QE1, QE2, QE3, Operation Twist, helicopter money, bailouts, stimulus, all of this stuff. Right. Despite that, the dollar still traded up. And despite the fact that uh, six months ago we had very high, the, you know, 30-year high inflation in the United States, 
it was still much higher in many places around the world. And the reason it was much higher many places around the world is commodities are priced in dollars. They still are now, that may change, but they're priced in dollars and their currencies were falling versus the US dollar. So while we had inflation, they had mega inflation, right? Right. It wasn't, it wasn't like the United States was suffering through the highest inflation in 30 years and the rest of the world was not dealing with that. In fact, they were dealing with a double whammy. They were dealing with stagflation on an unimaginable scale because what was happening is in dollar terms, they were experiencing deflation because of their US dollar debt that they owed. But in local currency terms, they were experiencing double digit inflation because the needed inputs, the oil, the food, the raw materials had gone up significantly in price. So they're getting squeezed from both sides. And again, so much so that, you know, in many places around the world, the monetary authorities, the governments, they had to intervene in, in their markets in order to try to stabilize them. Yeah. One example I used on a whiteboard video lately, because I really tried to think through what's the big disconnect for a lot of people. And the conclusion I came to is they own, when they're looking at dollars outside the United States, they only look at the asset side of the balance sheet. Yep. They're completely oblivious to the liability side. And why that's so important, and what I did for the whiteboard video, is I just said, okay, let's just assume the entire globe has one balance sheet. So this is the aggregate balance sheet for the global economy. And let's just say that there's $100 trillion on there. Because, you know, I, I, I don't want to go through the math, but I was guessing yeah. about $100 trillion. And so that's the asset side. Well, great. Well, all those dollars can come flooding right back into the United States. Saudi Arabia can sell them for uh, rubles or yuan or whatever. And that's a big problem for the dollar. But now let's look at the liability side. The liability mm -hmm. side, since 99% of those dollars were created through debt and issuance of, of loans, well, you're going to have uh, uh, at least $100 trillion in debt that needs to be paid off, plus principal. So right. for easy math, let's just assume that it's 120 billion. So now yeah. let's just assume that everybody dumps their dollars. Saudi Arabia dumps their dollars, they sell it for yuan. How does that impact the global balance sheet? It doesn't. You still have the exact same amount of dollars and the exact same amount of demand for dollars when you look at the liability side of the balance sheet and that dollar-denominated principal plus the dollar-denominated uh, interest payments. And then let's just assume that everyone dumps it. I'm never using dollars again, so I'm just going to completely pay off all of my existing debt. Okay, well, then what you've got is that the, the $100 trillion goes down to zero, the principal goes down to zero, but there's most likely going to be interest payments there. There's going to be most likely some other payments, which is going to make the, the where there's demand for dollars. And uh, then the dollar is just going to rip higher because now there's zero dollars, you know, just taking the <laughs> right. product experiment. Supply falls even faster than demand. Ex exactly. Well said. And so yeah. I think that is what I try to encourage people to do when they see this headline that says, oh, my gosh, Saudi Arabia is dumping dollars or whatever. That's great. They're looking at the asset side, but also taking to, consider uh, to consideration that liability side of the balance sheet. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's important to talk about this because, and, and people hate when I, I, I get so many DMs and emails and comments that I should not talk about this stuff. But like, if it ever came to the fact that Saudi Arabia said, you know what, enough, 
we will deal with whatever pain we have to deal with. We are not going to sell oil in dollars anymore. Okay, so let's go back to why they decided to sell dollars or oil in dollars in the first place. The reason is because they were a third world country. They had a lot of oil. The United States came in there and said, we will make you guys who are currently ruling the world, ruling the, your country, the richest people in the world. We will modernize your economy and we will protect you and make sure that you stay in power despite whatever your citizens revolt against, right? And that was the deal that was struck. And so the U.S. has kept the, the, fam, the Saud family in power for the last 50 years. And as a result, the Saud family has priced oil in dollars and they've become incredibly wealthy. Saudi Arabia has one of the highest standards of living for, for natives, for locals, for the, the, the imported workers, not so much. But for the, for the Saudi Arabian citizens have one of the highest uh, rated standards of living in the world. Now, let's imagine that they decide we no longer like this deal. We are not going to price oil in dollars anymore. What do you think the people that have been protecting them for the 50 years on the deal are going to do? You think they're just going to say, OK, no problem. You know, it was a good 50 years. We had a good run. Now it's over. <laughs> and then, of course, people will say, well, no problem. Russia will just come in and provide their security. OK, let's think through logistically how that works. Russia now has to move all of their people, all of their equipment, all of their facilities, all their computer systems, everything into the country under fire of the United States, who would not just sit back and let this happen. So even if they are, even if Russia is successful in replacing the United States as the protectorate for Saudi Arabia, don't you think that that week or two weeks or month or two years or however long that process takes, I would be willing to bet that there's more than one bullet fly during that period of time. Mm. And unfortunately, there may be a lot of bullets flying. There may be missiles. And <laughs> the point is, is this is not a smooth transition from one system to another like this, where the, the, the current global superpower is getting knocked from the top of the hill. Even if the global superpower loses, even if he gets knocked off the hill, it is not going to come without chaos. It just doesn't work that way, right? And so, you know, the idea that this is going to be a smooth transition, the U.S. time's up, there's nothing that they can do about it. This is, it's just, it, it's silly to me to hear, to hear people talk like this. And that's why I push back so hard against it, because I know there's kind of the retail public out there who hears this stuff and they, and they just accept it because it's, it sounds interesting, it sounds good, it sounds right. But when you actually think through the logistics of it, it just won't work that way. And that's, you know, it's, that's just not the real world, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, and so and to be clear, yeah. uh, let me just explain to the viewer there, uh, I, because I know you're, tr you're insinuating this great point, And that is that chaos, the more chaos we have in the world, the lower the velocity of money goes, the lower the velocity of dollars go or currency units, the higher the demand for those currency units to pay off the existing debt. And the higher the demand goes, then most likely the higher the value of that currency goes against other fiat currencies. So chaos equals most likely dollar demand going up. Right. And, and here's the thing is, again, I think well, part of the issue is that I've always worked with individuals, George. I've never you know, managed money for other institutions or you know, big endowments. I've always worked with individuals and business owners. 
people who actually operate in the real real world and they're not they're always very smart and very successful but they're not always necessarily versed in you know financial lingo and stuff so i've always had to kind of come up with with ways to explain things in simple terms to them but and, and so that's why i'm kind of maybe overly sensitive to when i hear other individuals receiving info that i think is just totally wrong because if i was having this conversation with a professional it doesn't take as long to get this point across i'll give you a good example uh, i was in switzerland last week and I, I was having lunch with a client um clients very from part of a very successful uh, middle eastern family that um they've they they import luxury goods from europe to the middle east and they've been doing this for decades and are very successful at it um and i was having dinner or, or, or in addition to having lunch with him, he has a Swiss banker, very successful Swiss banker who works for a very prestigious firm. And so we start, we just started talking because I, I kind of had the same job as him or, or similar. So we just kind of started talking business and I started asking him about, you know, his international clients and he let I mean, he works with some of the wealthiest people in the world. Um, and he works with some people from, you know, countries that have been sanctioned before. Mm. And the reality is, is when those countries get sanctioned, those those funds get locked, you know, and and no, the Swiss banks are not going to go against what the United States wants them to do, or what the ECB wants them to do, or the Swiss National Bank wants to do. Um, they will choose to do business with the West rather than to do business with these sanctioned countries. Again, this they're not being forced to do this necessarily by the governments. The governments are putting these rules in place, but you know, just from a business decision. They choose to do business in, you know, in the SWIFT system and, and with Western, with uh, Western um, markets. Because if they didn't, and this is really important to understand, if they went, if Switzerland were to go against what the United States wanted, what NATO wanted, they are going to get shut out of the European markets and the U.S. markets. In other words, you cannot sell your services to those markets anymore. Now, I know some people are out there saying, well, fine, then just sell to Russia and China. Well, okay, that's very easy to say, but those markets aren't as big as the Western markets. Now, someday they might be, but right now they're not. So if you're out there and you're a business owner and your CEO, or I'm sorry, your, your president comes along and says, don't do business with the people you're doing business with already. Just do business with Russia and China. And that means that your revenues are going to go from, I don't know, 100x, to 20x and they say well that's fine you'll make it up over time are you really going to be in favor of that are you really going to let your business go down 80 percent just because your president told you to probably but, not but, right but even if you do brent it, it might not be dollar negative because if no, no but, the, but the, yeah sounds yeah, insane this is, to say that but when you understand the liability side of the balance sheet you get it well this is my point is first of all the incentive for people to do what's being suggested is extremely low. So, so it's not going to be as easy to get them to do it as just the headline says. And then second of all, even if they do do it, it's not necessarily dollar negative for the reasons that you've pointed out. And this, this again, is the point that I've tried to get across. Not that the dollar will go up because the U.S. is the greatest place in the world and we're the American exceptionalists and I'm this jingoistic American who thinks that the U.S. can never lose its power. That, that's not it at all. The point is, is that the transition from one system to another is chaotic, not only economically, but probably militarily. 
and that chaos will see it, it, it just won't be smooth. I don't know exactly how it will happen. Nobody does. But what I do know is the U.S. will not stand by and cede hegemony to somebody else. That I am sure of. Yeah, yeah. And I want to be very clear once again that you and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my view is the dollar is definitely in the process of losing reserve currency as we speak. There's no question about that. And it's, and it's definitely accelerating, for sure. My point that I've always made is we are in the middle of that process. That's for sure. I don't know what inning we're in, but I can tell you that that process, it doesn't happen in days, weeks, or years. It happens in yeah. decades. And That's just right. because we're in the heart of it right now and we can see it playing out in front of our own eyes doesn't mean that uh, you know we hit that Bretton Woods moment, so to speak, within the next month or two. Right. Yeah, and the, the other thing I want to make clear, too, is I'm not advocating that this is the way it should be. I'm not defending the current system. I'm just trying my best to explain to people how the system works yeah, and right. why the system cannot be changed just with the stroke of a pen. Um, you know, someday this will happen. And to your point, it, the process has started. Um, you know, I don't know anybody that's blind to the idea that this isn't happening at all. Um, but it is a very, very long and it's a very chaotic process. And, and I, I just, I fear when I, when, I, when, I, when I think about all the headlines that we've seen and, and the people that just, when I want to interact with them, either at conferences or, or over Twitter, or when I do interviews and I, you know, I'll do the ask me anything. And the questions, I, 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 can, I can almost just see the way their portfolio is allocated based on the questions they're asking. And it just, it just it, it scares the hell out of me because I, I've met so many people over the years who have just plowed 50, 60, 70% of their portfolio into a certain theme or a certain idea. And it, if it doesn't pay off in the time period that they need it to pay off in, they're, they're, they're just behind the eight ball. And you can just see the fear in their eyes. And, you know, I... I think this is one of the, I've been doing this for almost 25 years now and it's the most uncertain time I've ever encountered. Mm. And so when I, when I, when I talk to people and they're just so certain that they know how this is going to play out, I'm like, really? How I'm not certain. How are you so certain? And uh, you know, people often say, well, Brent, you're certain the dollar is going higher. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not certain. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, if I'm wrong, I, I've, I've taken steps that if I am wrong, I will be okay. Now, I don't think I'm wrong, but can I be? Of course I can be wrong. Um, and, and I think it's always healthy to, to admit that you can be wrong and understand where you can be wrong and kind of plan, have a plan in case you are wrong. But if you think about it, somebody asked me the other day, well, why can't you just admit that you're wrong? And I said, well, okay, <laughs> let's, let, let, let's pretend that you're right. And let's pretend that I cannot admit it. What evidence can, I show, can you show me that I'm wrong? Other than the headlines, what evidence can you show me that I'm wrong? Oh, that's and when you get tumbleweed. That's when you get digital well, tumbleweed. And, 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 that's, and that's the thing, right? You know, when I first started talking about this, uh, God, it's like four or five years ago now. I started talking about it in 2018. Uh, 2018 is the very first time I ever mentioned the word milkshake. And I think 2019 is when I kind of, and it was all just kind of, you know, I didn't really have it all thought out perfectly at that point, and I still don't. But, you know, in 2019, I started talking about it more. But 
when I very first time I mentioned it, I said, I thought that we would get into a situation where we would have a currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis. And I thought over time, the dollar, the Dow and gold would all rise together. Now, since the very first time I mentioned that, the dollar's up about 10%, the Dow's up about 40% and gold's up about 50%. So, and I said along the way, those, they, they would all have tremendous drawdowns, terrifying drawdowns along the way. Well, if you think about it, the dollar's up 10%, it's had some terrifying drawdowns along the way. The Dow's up 40% and it's had two or three terrifying drawdowns along the way. And gold's up 40 or 50% and it's had two or three drawdowns along. So that's the evidence that I'm looking at. I'm saying, okay, I haven't got it totally right and I'm absolutely not going to get it totally right, but I'm not totally wrong either, right? And so it, that the framework has helped me Kind of transition through the last two or three, four years with an understanding of what's going on. And you know, yeah. I'm not just flying blind. And I, I have a roadmap that allows me to kind of see where we're going. Now, am I gonna have to take a detour at some point? Probably. Am I gonna have to stop off and you know get a sandwich and go to the bathroom at some point? Probably, but at least I I can kind of see where we're headed. And uh that that that's provided a, a lot of help. Yeah, so you've got that navigational framework. And when you're talking about, you know, you you can kind of see where we're headed. Uh, let's talk about the yield curve. I've been yeah. talking about that a lot. You know, everyone knows it's recession uh, yeah. power or it's predictive ability, I should say. But sure. the key is not necessarily when the curve is inverted, but it's actually when the curve is no longer inverted. That's when the stuff usually hits the fan. So if you could kind of uh, give me your view yeah. and your current thoughts on the yield curve and recession, and then I want to talk about gold and I want to talk about commodities. Yeah, so I've been saying for a while, I, I, you know, coming into the beginning of the year, I said I thought in Q2, either at the end of Q1 or into Q2, we would have some kind of an event, a uh, uh, revisit of the lows, some kind of a, you know, a shock. Um, and I don't know if we're going to have that by the end. You know, we had a little mini one a month ago with, with the banks. Um, you know, whether we're going to get back down to the lows, you know, in Q2, maybe not. But I think by the end of the, I think by the end of the year, we will. I think the, you know, the market markets for the most part have held up pretty good this year. I think, I think the Dow's up eight or 9%. The S&P's up 13 or 14. The NASDAQ's up like 20%. Gold's up 10 or 15%. You know, oil's, is oil up? Oil might be flat for the year. Uh, but for the most part, but volatility is at a four-year low. Isn't that amazing? Mm. I mean, there's just been no volatility. So, so for the most part, the, the the markets have held up. And part of it is, you know, what you mentioned about the yield curve uh, being inverted. I'm not shocked that the markets have held up. And if I did some interviews at the beginning of the year where I said, listen, everybody's very bearish. Wouldn't shock me at all if we get some kind of a rally because everybody's so bearish. And the other reason is because two things. One, the rate hikes really just started a year ago. It feels like we've been having them for a long time, but the first rate hike just happened a year ago. It often takes a year for rate hikes to show up, to work their way through the economy and show up in the economy. Right. The other thing is that if you look historically, whenever a yield curve inverts, it always leads to a recession, right? Everybody knows this. But what most people don't tell you or don't know is that from the time the yield curve inverts until the recession arrives, equities tend to actually do pretty good. Mm. 
And that time period between when the yield curve inverts and the recession arrives, on average, I think is like 12 to 18 months. Yeah, Josh, so can first, you go ahead and, and throw up this yeah. chart real quick? And then Brent, keep talking and then I'll get your yeah. thoughts on this chart. Well, so, 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 so the first time the yield curve inverted, I think was a year ago, it inverted just very quickly and then it uninverted and then it inverted again, I think last June or July. So it's been nine months since the inversion, right? So I'm not shocked that the markets have held up over that time, but I'm also not going to be shocked when, you know, a big drawdown shows up. And I, I think the easy money for the year has already been made. I think the rest of the year is going to be very, very hard. Yeah. So Brent, check out this chart really quick. And uh, Jesse Felder, who I think you know. You're going to make well. me put on my glasses, George. I'm old. <laughs> Sorry about that. I tried <laughs> to enlarge it here. Can you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Okay, cool. So basically what we have in the horizontal line, the negative numbers are the days prior to the official recession start. And okay. the, to the right, we have the days after the official yeah. recession start. We got gold, commodities, corporate yeah. debt, U.S. Treasuries, S&P. And to your point, if we look at this gold line, the, the, the months leading up to the recession, and keep in mind, this is most likely when the yield curve is actually inverted in this right. area that I'm circling here, the S&P is going up. till we That's get right. to a point, uh, and so is gold and so are commodities, till you get to a point about, call it two or three months before the recession, and then gold commodities, the S&P start going down. And then once yep. we get that recession, and this, by the way, guys, is when the Fed starts to uh, pivot. If you look historically, right. we can look at a chart of Fed funds. And uh, right here, Brent, and I know you know this well, but just for the viewers, you, we don't get that recession when the Fed is hiking rates. Uh, you get the hike, you get the pause, you get the pivot, and then, and then it shows up. That's and right. then it shows up. That's right. So we can assume that when we get this point, this dotted line, that that's when the Fed has already pivoted. And you can see right. that we get the biggest decline in the stock market after the Fed already pivots. And that's when gold commodities flatten out. Uh, then gold usually rips higher. And then you see commodities struggle a little bit, could be a buying opportunity. But what are your overall right. thoughts on this chart? No, I, I, I tend to agree with that. And you know, you know what else this shows me? And this is this is actually I'm I'm so glad you're showing this because I, I think this is important, especially for the people who argue that gold will rise in a recession. Uh, yeah, it typically does. And this chart, this chart shows that very clearly. But what it also shows is that leading up to it, especially if there's some kind of a liquidity event that yep. leads to the recession, gold falls with everything else because everything is getting liquidated, right? And gold is often seen as an insurance policy. Well, when you get in trouble, what do you do? You cash in your insurance policy. So gold gets liquidated. But what often happens is once the liquidity event is over, gold typically recovers faster and stronger than everything else. Yeah, and yet and you this is a response to the liquidity. Absolutely, event, right? absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that this this is part of the reason when, when when people say to me, if all fiat's losing value, then just buy gold. Okay, I totally agree that you should buy gold. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm open to having a very large percent of your portfolio in gold. I don't think you should have 100% in gold because if you have 100% of your portfolio in gold or 70% or whatever the number is, 
And then we get into this liquidity event and gold falls 10, 15, 20, 25%, which it historically has done when we've gotten into these liquidity events. And you don't have any excess liquidity to pay your bills or do whatever. All of a sudden you become a forced seller rather than using that as an opportunity to buy. Um, and so, you know, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that that chart, I think that's what we're probably going to see sometime between now and the end of 2023. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly my view. So what would you suggest? You know, you can't give any personal investment advice, obviously. But if yep. you were just an average Joe, you didn't have your experience, you didn't have your knowledge, your background or understanding of global macro. What do you think you would be doing right now with your portfolio? I can tell you what I'm doing yep. with that model portfolio that I have with Rebel Capitals Pro is yeah. it, it's $100,000. It's actual money. It's not just paper trading. And I'm just 10% in gold that's always my insurance policy and then i'm 90 yep. percent in t-bills just waiting just that's the yep. dry powder i don't want any bank counterparty risk for obvious reasons and i'm just yep. holding it there and waiting for that opportunity at maybe the end of this year when we see those prices start to come down like we historically have and boom then you go in and take advantage of it yeah i think what i would probably do again this is very general this isn't specific advice but you know, with with hundred thousand dollars, I would have between ten and twenty thousand dollars in gold. Okay. Now, and I, and I would say I don't expect that to pay off right now. I would actually expect it to even go down a little bit over the next six to nine months, sometime over the next six to nine months. Then I would probably have forty thousand to fifty thousand dollars in very large dividend-paying U.S. equities. Hmm, okay. Okay. Um, Philip Morris, Dow Chemical. You know, Boeing, not Boeing, you know, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Coca-Cola, you know, these big battleship companies that aren't going to go bankrupt, that are paying anywhere from a two and a half to five and a half percent dividend. You know, it's not, you know, if and, and I would expect these to probably go down at some point over the next six to nine but months. But they'll go down less, right? But they'll go down less. They won't go bankrupt. They'll pay you in the meantime. You'll be earning a dividend in the meantime. And then I would probably have $10,000 just in cold, hard cash. And the other forty thousand bucks or whatever is left in T bills that pay me four and a half to five and a half percent. I mean, T right. bills are paying over five percent now. Right. You know. So now let's 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 say we have that portfolio, and let's say things just rocket higher. Well, I'm still getting four five percent on my T bills. I'm getting two and a half to five percent dividend on my equities. The underlying's rising, and gold's probably going up as well. Right, so right. I'm not making as much somebody as somebody who's levered long the NASDAQ, but I'm doing okay. Now, if we get a pullback, we get a very hard pullback. You know, gold's not, you still have the same number of ounces of gold. It's not getting, you know, the price is changing, but you still own all the gold now that you, that you did then. Your equities have maybe, maybe your equities pull back 20%, 25%, but you're making 5%. And your T-bills are now making money and you've got all this cash and now you can go in and you can buy these distressed companies at 20% off. You can buy gold at 20% off. You can buy the miners that are probably 30% off. And a year from now, you'll probably be better off than if you were just in some kind of a levered long portfolio right now. So my, my point is, is for years and years and years, whenever I did interviews or whenever I went to conferences or whenever I did presentations, and would debate with, you know, the, the, the conversation was always the lack of yield. You have to go so far out on the yield curve to even get two or 3% return. You can get 5% now for sitting in the, in the safest thing or the closest thing to cash, right? 
it's not a horrible place just to wait out what's coming and and use it opportunistically. Um, so I, I, I and I and I want to stress this is if you look at sentiment indicators right now, they're very bearish. So a lot of people are expecting some kind of a sell-off. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a lot of times when that happens, markets will go higher. So I'm not sitting here saying that markets can't go higher. They can absolutely go higher. And it's not it's so you can actually make a lot of money in this type of environment. I'm not saying you can't make money now. All I'm saying is that you are taking an increased level of risk to do it. And it's in this type of an environment where you can not only get a 20% return, but you can get a 20% drawdown pretty quickly. Yeah. So in this environment where you have the opportunity to put your money in something very low risk, get 5% yield, it's a great optionality to do, right? And if, you, if you're wrong, you're still making money and you'll, there's always going to be another opportunity down the road to make money. What you don't want to do is suffer a 30 or 40% drawdown that you can't recover from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so this is, to me, this is the type of environment where, you know, if you're patient, you are going to get an amazing opportunity, but you need to have cash. You need to have some dry powder when that opportunity comes along. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Josh, were you taking notes there for our model portfolio, buddy? <laughs> yeah, I was writing everything down. <laughs> All right, great. If you want more intel like this, you got to come to Rebel Capitalist Live and get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. You can see Brent uh, speak and, and go into even more detail on his uh, ideas and his suggestions, what he's doing with his own personal portfolio and for his clients. You can go grab him a beer. You can say hi. You can ask him your own personal question at the cocktail party. It's definitely something you don't want to miss. Brent, are you working on a presentation yet? Can you give us any? I was. Any clues I was just going to say. What? I. I, I got to figure out what I'm going to talk about. I don't know. It's, it's going to have. It's going to have to be a surprise. Okay. Well, it'll be very topical. So, what, for the viewers and listeners who want to find out more about what you do, uh, can you tell them about the podcast? Can you yeah. tell about your Twitter feed? Yeah, so you know, I think I think most people who've heard me speak before know that I'm pretty active on Twitter. So at Santiago AU Fund, or you can just search Santiago Capital. Um, you know, I'm pretty active there. I do a number of different podcasts. I love coming on your show. I think people people that are just hearing this for the first time and want to know more about kind of what I talk about can go find some historical interviews on your site. And then at the beginning of the year, I started this. Uh, I don't call it a podcast because I don't like the word podcast, but I started a show with my friend John. And it's at Milkshakes Pod um, on Twitter, or you can go to milkshakespod.com, and you can find it on YouTube as well. We do it's on at iTunes. least once a week. It's on iTunes, Brent. I've seen it. And it's, on yeah, iTunes. it's on iTunes. It's I on all the major platforms. Uh, you know, we do at least one show a week, oftentimes two. And it, you know, it's a fun thing. Sometimes we, it's called we we call it Milkshakes Market and Madness because you know the milkshake kind of goes with my theory. The markets, we're always talking about what's going on in finance, and then. It's just a crazy world. So we always try to find something fun that we, that we can laugh about. And there's usually plenty of material to do that. So <laughs> yeah, de- definitely interesting <laughs> times, buddy. That's for sure. All right, man. Well, yeah. I appreciate your time. That was an incredible conversation as always. And I can't wait to see you in Orlando. Yeah. Looking forward to it.